Welcome to the Sexy Sacred Space podcast. I'm your host, CJ Thomas, and I interview radical human beings with innovative views on what it means to be sexy, sacred, and balanced, both externally and within themselves. We talk about everything from disrupting the status quo to powerful esoteric self-care practices, embracing social change, and more. This show was created to help you make and take up your own sexy, sacred space. So let's go. Welcome to the Sexy Sacred Space podcast. I'm your host, CJ Thomas, and my guest today is a woman whose soul shines just as brightly as her smile. Rhythm is the founder of Divine Thrive Realm, a grief counseling, coaching, holistic healing, and body work and Conscious Death Work Center. I asked Rhythm to come on to the show today to share with us her perspective on grief, revolution, embracing and defining Blackness in a world that's just now truly awakening to it. And I'm so excited to dive into this juicy conversation with her today. Welcome to the show, Rhythm. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. I am very excited to be here. Um, Just knowing who you are and knowing that this podcast and knowing that um, you have so many great listeners and also just that um, the platform that you stand on is just so solid and so beautiful so I'm really glad to be to be here Mm, and thank you so much for agreeing to come on to the show I know that when I had just started the show you were one of the people on my list that I wanted to get on so I'm really grateful to be able to do this interview with you today and I just wanted to ask you and start off with a question that I ask all of our guests on the show which is how are you radically taking up space for yourself these days? Oh, yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's such a, a deep question because um, that, that can just take on many forms for me right now. But I will say one of them, well, not even one because it's just so many areas of it, but um, the the whole idea of me saying like taking up space is literally like physically being outside and and just being able to relax in the space of just outsideness and just having fresh air and hearing the water and hearing the birds sing and um just being able to move through outdoors in just a, a way that um, I find great pleasure in either through biking, um, either through hiking, I, and just in complete meditation out in nature. Um, but I also take up much space in how I'm choosing to center my emotions right now and center um, other people's emotions right now as well. And no longer, um, well, I wouldn't even say no longer because I haven't been doing it for a long time. I actually have made an oath years ago so that I wouldn't um, overtake the emotions of, uh, of like, pretty much the emotions on how we look, on how we feel about things, I want to just be very raw with it. And I've taken, and I decided years ago that I was going to be very raw with my emotions and deciding to say, if I want to cry in public, I'm going to cry in public. 
And if I'm going to feel sad in public, I'm going to feel sad in public and nobody's going to make me feel that um, me feeling sad or why do you feel sad? We're in a you know good place or you're in a, you know, everything's good around you. Like I, I was just really tired of masking my emotions. So I have been really um, just even dropping into that space even deeper over the last few weeks of just saying like, I'm not going to mask any sadness I'm not going to mask any anger. I'm not going to mask anything that um, I feel has allowed other people to be comfortable in complacency with um, how all emotions. And I have been just okay with just taking up that space of unmasking and being raw and being pure and being open and coming as that person of being raw and pure and open to whatever space that I'm going to, um, even if it's just walking down a grocery aisle. <laughs> like, like I'm choosing to be in to be in that emotional space and just not um, and just being okay with just being in it. And that's how I'm taking up space. Mm, that is such a beautiful answer. And thank you so much for sharing. And I think it's really powerful because, you know, it, it's so hard to be vulnerable and we're not all taught that that's safe or okay. And it may not even be like a verbal, like, this is not safe. It might just be, you know, so much of showing up in your vulnerability and getting shot down or isolated and not knowing that it's okay to still be that vulnerable person and that it really, you know, sparks power. So I think that's beautiful that that's how you're taking up space in the world. And I hope that the people that you're around are, and I'm sure that the people that you're around are really being influenced by that. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I hope so too. I, t I tell people that like, sometimes I don't see the benefit of it until sometimes after, like I don't like at those moments, you just sometimes can say that, Oh, like, uh, I don't know why this, like, why I'm choosing to do this right now, but this is just what feels right. Mm -hmm. And everyone might not, might not even reflect that, might not reflect that this feels right. But later on, um, as days evolve, as time evolves, there are people who really do appreciate that. There are people who really do say that, like, I thank you for being that way. And even at that moment when you didn't recognize that you were, you were okay being in that moment and being and centering your emotions. I think that there are a lot of people who find the, uh, that, that uncomfortability, but there's, there, but there's growth. There are people who find growth in that vulnerability. And, and like I said, at that time, they might not reflect it, but later on, I've had people tell me that like, wow, like I really appreciate you uh you being that way or i really appreciate you um uh not just contouring yourself and and into what other people want to be reflected back at them like i'm really glad that you really chose to not be that person and you chose to say that i'm going to be whole i'm going to be myself i'm going to show up just as myself and no matter what the degree it may be and so um yeah i've been just working with that as well just not having that reflection back at me and just knowing that it can easily evolve into um thankfulness later on down the road for other people mm, absolutely and i know that just based on the work that you do you're no stranger to putting yourself in spaces that aren't 
considered to be comfortable for other people. And especially when it comes to the death dueling, dueling that you do and the grief work that you do. And I'm curious if you would like to share with our listeners how you got into that work. Okay. Um, well, I, so I've been doing uh, this type of work for over six years now. And I initially got into it, um, but I tell people I've been doing the work for six years, but it started way before that. It started, um, I, would I would even eventually say that it, was st it started once I was 12 years old and I had a friend who, um, one of his friends, powerful little warrior princess like me, um, she, was, uh, she was murdered um, in a, more of a violent a violent attack had happened. Um, her brother was in a gang and um, she was uh, just so happened to got caught in the, in the crossfire. And, um, and she ended up dying. Her brother ended up surviving. Um, he was on like, he was like in um, critical care for like two months and nobody knew if he was going to survive or not, but he actually ended, ended up surviving. Um, but she was dead on a, and, um, I recall that moment of great pain and great grief that happened to me because she had been one of my best friends. I had known her since we were, you know, we were at, we were probably about seven years old when I met her and we just sort of continued growing up together. And um, throughout all the, throughout all the arguments, throughout all of the tensions that we had, you know, um, it we were we still remained very tough and very bonded and i remember when she, once she passed away um we it, it was brought to my attention and i remember my mom coming to me and just like in in complete grief and and complete mourning and telling me mournfully that you know your friend just we just found out that you know she was killed she you know she was murdered and um, it was by a violent act and all these types of things. And I remember then that instead of my mom telling me it's going to be okay, she just looks at me and she says, what, what do you feel about this? Mm. What are you thinking? And I just, of course, you know, and however I could um, verbalize it at that moment, it was just great sadness. And, um, and my mom supported me through that process. Mm -hmm. She supported me in the process um, uh, multiple times when it would come up because I, I realized at then, at that point in time, that grief wasn't linear and that there was no true process to it that, like, really looked a particular way. There were aspects to it that maybe looked the same but it was like it was very different it was um I would see something that we played with together and I would cry and I like or I would like you know like it'd be a month later and I would uh, uh think about her and I would just start crying you know so it was it was it would be these things that would come up and my mom would just be okay with supporting me through the process she would be okay with not telling me and putting restrictions on my grief hmm. and um and and she gave me so much room to be able to move freely in and she didn't have any answers. I mean my mom had witnessed so much grief in her life. Um 
she didn't have really any answers. Like she, she wasn't able to, she didn't give me any answers, but she also didn't interrupt my process. And, um, and fast forward years later, my mom, my uh, mom gets, she, she gets diagnosed that she only has a few months to live because she has cancer and we have to, um, you know, get together, whole family has to get together and figure out what they're going to do. And that's really when the work started of me just saying that, like, you know what, like, this is hard, but I have to be able to place my hands on this body. I have to be able to lock eyes with this body. I have to be able to find a reflection within my body and her body. And that was a necessary moment for me to really realize just how important the process is to really be present during active dying stages. And, um, and that, and that's, and that's what really um, catapulted my experience right into the aspect of actually uh, of the death of the the true um, death cycle. I, I did. I was. I started doing like. So I did it for my mom, but then um, other people asked me, "Can I do in the in the right um, passages?" And so I would I would hold these you know gatherings with family members. And because I did it with my sister, me and my sister, we did it together. I called her in and said, "Let's do a let's do a, a in the right passage while the while the breath is still left in her body. Let's do in the right passage for her." And so we did in the right passage for my mother. Um, and dealt with you know ritual bathing and all these types of things while she still had breath in her body, mind you. And we did all these things just to sort of prepare ourselves, but also prepare her that we were going to be okay after she, after she. And, um, and so it, it was, it was sort of a, a union of souls saying, thank you. We love you. And it's okay to go. And, um, and I felt that with us doing that, my mom was in more peace to say, okay, I know that y'all are going to be okay when I leave. Because she, um, uh, at first I felt that there were, there was energy that was sort of like allowing her to still sort of hang on in that middle space because she, because her love for us and her ideal of being the protector and like hanging in there really, um, it, it was, it, you know, it was encouraged by everybody. Hang in there. Oh, we're praying for you. Oh, we're, you know, like, like, uh, oh, well, you know, God's got this and this and this, you know, any religious, uh, anything anybody could throw at you. They would say, let's pray about it. Let's do these things. But the, but the problem with, well, it's not even a problem, but it's, it can be problematic because once we tell that to people, once we do that to people, we're we're literally going out of our way to not acknowledge the act of dying process. And the act of dying process is so important and it's such a short window. Mm. And and that short window of that act of dying process is is a powerful one. And it's one that uh, that 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 more people, I feel, once we tap into that la that window of opportunity to say, "I see you, I love you, I acknowledge you, and you're free to go," um, that heals. That that's that's more healing than us um, denying it or saying and doing everything that to keep the body there. Right. And so I became 
but I do her body. I developed that even the same body that I came from. I developed an even deeper birth through her body again at the end of her life. Wow. That's, that's amazing. And, you know, so there's a few questions that came up for me while you were sharing that, but I first just want to say, just from sharing the story of losing your friend when you were younger to sharing that process you went through with your mother and holding space for her it, it, through her active dying process. I just thank you for, for sharing that because that's really, while I understand that that is a deep part of how you got your origins and what you do, it's also a lot to share. And I think it just really speaks to that vulnerability that you were talking about and how you do show up in that place and you are able to share that story. And I want to dive into it a little bit later about what it's like to be able to share that story now after, you know, kind of coming through it and, and how it's helped you grow. But the first thing that I want to ask is about the, the rituals that you and your sister did um, during the act of dying process for your mother while she still had the breath in her body. And also, you know, so with those rituals, like, where, where did those come from for you? Was it something that you had learned before or was this something that you had kind of channeled intuitively? Um, a little bit of both, <laughs> to be honest. It was, it was literally a little bit of both. It was, uh, um, I come, I have strong Southern roots. Um, my family is very strong Southern roots. And um, we have um, lots of things that go into the process of a dying, of a dying loved one. And um, my aunts and my uncles and everybody else have it, but um, like we have our songs, we have our, um, like, uh, that we sing over there, over, that we sing at a person's bedside. We have our um, chant that we sing. Um, a lot of them do come from more of a, a, a religious point of view, um, but there was also through that um, breakthrough that um, I met another midwife and she like um, she was a grandmother midwife. She's, she's gone now into the next round, but um, my, she, she pretty much also like, um, I remember just being like, I don't really know, you know, like, like how to truly process all of this. And she really helped me as well to just say like, Oh, like um, by giving me even more ritual to do that really assisted with that as that full circle. But one of the things is that, um, to be honest, it's it's showing up so empathetically and being there because that's the way my family has always been. And so, like um, for instance, like um, massaging the feet and putting anointing oil on the feet and massaging feet, um, putting anointing oil on the head and massaging the head um, of that person dying um like uh, holding their hand and humming and praying and, and like out loud you know because we're very loud and boisterous with it and we're just like you know like um uh that so so that was um that that's just my lineage that has been what I've seen um when we would visit an elder's house and see my mom do see my aunts do um they would lay we would lay hands they would lay hands on me they would touch them. And I just remembered that being so uh, important because in my culture, we are so physical. Like we, we are so intimate. We are like, and, and that's just a black spirit like coming through. But, but, but we, we will touch you. And, and even though it's a body that is literally dying, 
they would go in and pray loud and place their hands on the body. They would go in and rub this body down. They would rub oil on the feet. They would rub oils on the head. They would grab, they would hold the hands. They would pat them on the shoulder. And even though this person is dying, even though if they were saddened by the death, they did not miss a beat with acknowledging death. And even though within that aspect, if they couldn't do anything, they still acknowledged it. They did what they could. And that was, I'm going to come in your room and sing. I'm going to come in your room and touch you. And I find that it's very fascinating because within this larger scope of society, we, and, and even when, it, when we want to talk about like decolonizing aspects of it, like as, as a black body present person, especially as a black woman body present person, there's so much beauty within the society of, of how we connect um, that the outer society um, that, we're in, that we're in and we're under does not acknowledge like the, the, the ritual of just, just connecting. You know, they think you got to be speaking in different languages and all these types of things for it to be like a true ritual. But it's like, no, like that's ritual. That's ritual. Like, like giving, bringing flowers and put, placing flowers and, um, get, and, and uh, allowing that person to drink teas or giving them tea or giving them baths or giving them herbal baths. Like, cause, uh, you know, we raised with tea, uh, we were raised with herb. Like my mom was a herbalist. She just didn't say it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, she, she did not say I'm a herbalist. My aunts didn't say they were herbalists. My grandmother didn't say that they were herbalists, but they were herbalists. They, they, they would be able to go find roots and they would be able to find flowers and they would be able to do these things and they would be able to make teas with them. They'd be able to do steams, put your face over it, you know, rub this on your chest, you know, like these were things that we did that I grew up with. And so with my mom, I was doing the same things that she taught me when I was a baby, how she took care of me, how she bathed me, how she gave me herbal baths, how she said, let's put some oats some chamomile tea in the bathtub to soothe you because you got chicken pox. That's ritual. Yeah. Like let, let let me rub oil on your scalp. Let me do your hair. Let me massage your scalp. Let me braid your hair. That's ritual. Absolutely. Let me yeah. yeah let, like just combing and brushing and kissing your forehead, holding you and humming, rocking. That's ritual. And, and that's what I, that, and that's what I tapped into. And then along the way, I added to it with just extra knowledge of even deeper ancestral knowledge that I gathered, but that, but that, that's how I, I was able to put it all together. And we were able to put, give, give my mom a, um, a bat, make a bath of different herbs that not necessarily just what she taught me, but like I said, once again, ancestral knowledge. And we, we get, we get, me and my sister gave her baths. We bathed the body. And bathing the body is it, it like, uh, like, my, um, uh, like my grandmother would say, I'll wash you in my dreams. Hmm. So it's so important. It is, it is so 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 important to 
to a, a acknowledge that um, uh, that water just has always been so important to us um, as as a culture, as a people, as a community. Um, through water, we have been disenfranchised through water. We have been, uh, you know, stripped from certain ideals of water. But we literally, water is is truly life for us, and um, and it's always been that way. Yes, absolutely. It's where we came from. And you're, yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, I really love how you were speaking to the fact that ritual is something so, so simple. And, and in that simplicity, it is also so sacred, like just combing and oiling the scalp, you know? And I think that it's really important for me as a black woman to hear that as an African American black woman. And I think for any African Americans out there to hear that, like we do have roots, even though we are part of, you know, we come from the diaspora and even though we don't know always where exactly, you know, we're from and as far as in Africa goes, we still have had to, as a as a race of people as a community of people overcome things and find ways to to comfort ourselves and nourish ourselves and um to celebrate and to honor just like you're saying honoring the passing of your mother you know to honor the life transitions that we experience and we have created our own roots in doing so our own rituals in doing so and so it's just such a beautiful reminder that you know while it may feel like we're so lost and we have to reach out to all these other places to find some sort of anchor to hold on to that tells us who we are and where we come from we really don't have to look that far to find that. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I think, and that's, and that's why I do call it decolonization work because, because, because of just what you said is that um, we were not given the credit that we're due on, um, on how we have brought forth ritual in this country. Mm. We're not given the credit of our of our dance and songs of bringing forth ritual songs that came from from birth songs that came from birth or songs that came from death. We 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 we're not given the credit of our chants and of our our stumps and uh, like we're not that credit is not it's just not due. I mean it's due because we don't we don't have. Um, the the same opportunity to sit back and truly acknowledge just how much we've given and, and our ancestors given right here on this soil what we've truly given we've given a lot we've given um a lot of of our grief and we've also given a lot to the death work that is done here in america we've given a lot of it it's true, the death work and the birth work. You were talking about how, you know, um, you were speaking with a midwife and it just made me think about the fact that a big part of our history that's erased is that many of the midwives were black women. And it's, it's real, it's it, the fact that black people have given so much and we haven't received the credit that's due for all of the work, the blood, the sweat, the tears, 
everything that's gone into essentially building this country. And I don't want to say that to say that we were the only ones that built this country because I don't want to, you know, erase the history of the other immigrants that came over here and helped build this country with no credit. But just in this, in this conversation, speaking about Black people, I think that that really speaks to why what we are experiencing right now is so intense. And so for the listeners out there who might be listening to this after it airs, we are in the middle of a revolution right now. We are in the middle of seeing many riots across the country around the death of George Floyd, the death of Breonna Taylor. There are so many Black people who have been killed even beyond them, this is this is piled up rage that is also backed by the fact that Black people, not only do we not get credit, but we're not seen for the human beings that we are. And what you just spoke to is a big part of what I think is why we're not seen for it is because there's just so much erasure of what it is that we really truly have contributed to this society and when you can't see the ways that people are showing up and bringing their soul to something you can't see them as human absolutely absolutely yes yes and that's and that is um why the rest that is needed um unfortunately doesn't happen to black people until they are dying Hmm. Um, and 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 that's where it needs to change the the rest and the reassurance and and knowing that oh like um we can you know we can come together like this and we can take care of one another like this at all times but but that that the space that it takes to just step back and rest in it is a space that not that that many of us cannot take up unfortunately when that when we're naturally inclined to do it, when that's just naturally who we are, these are these are spaces that we still find resistance at of just being a black person at rest. Because we're not taught to really do that until until we until we're we're either taking care of a person that's actively dying or until we're the one that's actively dying. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And and that's so with that there's a couple of questions I want to ask there. The number one though is like, can we just talk about what actively dying looks like? Because one thing about our society that is painfully true is the fact that we kind of sweep death under the rug. Um, a lot of times the way that our dead are taken care of right now, and especially because we're also going through a pandemic and seeing how there are thousands upon thousands of people dying and not really being honored in how they're, their deaths should be be um, seen and approached. And so I would love for you to just share with people what what is active dying look like? What is the active dying process? Active dying is what um, I, like I would sum up as um, a person who is going to be no longer in their flesh in um let le- we would sum up in less than a year a year or less than um because the act of dying window can look like many things but um a, but usually like a year to four months to three months to two months to even two weeks you know those are um uh, stages of like okay like 
this person um, as of how they're pro uh, like of, of how it's processing and how it's looking. This person will not be here in the next two months, in the next one month, in the next few days. Um, that that's you know how it would look necessarily to just say that that person won't will no longer be here. But how active dying the the stage of it is when a person um, is. And, and this is where the gray area is because this is, you know, in my in my mind, I would want to say this is where the acceptance is, and this is where okay, like like the act of dying stage is once somebody has accepted death and said okay, it is happening. All parties have accepted the death of that person. The person that's dying has accepted it. The people that are taking care of them have accepted it. Um, and, and the family members and everyone else has truly accepted it. And now that person is going to, you know, be going off. But in, unfortunately, in our society, the the process of that doesn't really go just like that. Um, we are taught to deny death up until its bitter ends. We are are taught to if we're the person actively dying, we're taught to deny that act of dying that's happening because the body is actively shutting down. The body is no longer supporting everything how it's how it used to. The body is no longer up up supporting all the organs. It's no no longer functioning at one hundred percent. It's no longer functioning at fifty percent even. The body is actively shutting down. And um and and at our and, in our society, we're we're not we're we're just really taught to just fight it to the bitter end, and we're taught to deny it to the bitter end. We're taught to put everything on me, everything I need to survive to the bitter end, and and we and the and then also the people who are supporting that person is also taught to deny it to the bitter end, and the and they're also taught to do everything that they can to keep that person alive as well, and. And and that's why I say that we miss sometimes that window of what act of dying really is. At that point in time, if the body is shutting down and there is and they and and there's no medical way to keep that body alive anymore, to keep all everything running at 100%, to keep everything running at even 90% or even 80%, you that 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 is the process then when you know okay this is now we're moved into this window of this this body will be going this body will no longer be here and it's very unfortunate because the act of dying process is not handled with care that it should be um uh, a, a lot of people put their own emotions in front of the act of dying person um, you know, that can be family members, children, uh, uncles, aunts, um, the the loved one, the wife, the husband, you know, who, whoever it may be, they were, they're always taught to insert their emotions into the, the act of dying process. Oh, you can do it. Oh, I see you did better. Oh, you know, and, and we, we put all of these, this more weight on this person that's actively dying. And instead of just allowing that process to be just that, it's supposed to be a peaceful process. It's supposed to be a process of peace, a, a process of healing, a process of 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 lifting something off you. But instead, we we add on to it. we 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 burden it down, we weigh it down, and um, we want it to be so heavy and hard and not um, 
not in an area of like uh of of true beauty because and even though this is hard to say because i know that, that people die violently too there are so many violent deaths and i know that a violent death is not necessarily intertwined with this but there's even an active dying process of violent death too mm. and um and we we are not putting the necessary care model of care in place for the act of dying process. Absolutely. I don't know if that really, but it's, <laughs> I guess I would say it's a complex answer, but, um, but yes, it's um, act of dying is just when the body is shutting down, it's fully, um, it, it's, it's, it's showing you that it, it will not be here anymore. That was the per a perfect answer for that. And what really, really hit home for me was that active dying even happens in instances of violent deaths. And, you know, I think for me, what I usually think is like, oh yeah, you know, a person is, is shot and killed and that's it. But you're right. You know, there, there is this, this moment between actual death and the leaving of that soul from the body, if that's what you believe happens, you know, but essentially the body actually dying. And for you to speak to the importance of acceptance and the role that acceptance plays in that, um, it really just brings up so much. And the first thing that came to mind for me was like, the fact that acceptance isn't just for the person dying, but it is for the community that's also losing that person. And when we look at these, you know, horrific deaths that are happening all across media where we're seeing Black lives being taken, it really just brings to the surface the fact that these are deaths that it's really hard to accept because we can't accept the way in which it's happened. And this goes even deeper, I mean, even to black on black crime that's happening and the fact that it's so hard to even accept that because it's just like, we know that this shouldn't be happening but because of systemic racism, because of the way that our communities have been built up and um, not, given the resources they need to thrive, this is what we have to witness every day. And, you know, just the acceptance piece, how do we get there? And I really have a feeling that grief and the way that we deal with our grief is really tied into that. So can you kind of speak to that in terms of, you know, how can we work through the grieving process in order to find the acceptance we need just to be able to be more in alignment with how we honor the deaths of these people that are leaving violently from our planet. Um, yes. Um, that, like, death happens in proximity at all regards. Um, it doesn't matter, you know, where, where we're at, where you're at, but it definitely affects, um, lower income neighborhoods a lot more than, um, uh, 
high, uh, upper class neighborhoods, I would say. And I and that even goes into, to be honest, um, it affects everybody, of course, but um, but the violence of the death and things like that is going to, you know, affect a lot more low uh, uh, low income neighborhoods. The um, there the the grief aspect is that um and i can speak on right now i can actually speak on present like what true like like the present moment and the present moment is is that um grief happens in the lungs and in the heart and you know in parts of the womb too but um you literally have people having the breath taken from their body and you have people who who are not able to truly breathe, who are saying, once I breathe deeply, all these emotions come up for me. But also, you have to think about this, too. The fires, people burning things down. That is a direct correlation on how they feel in their body. That I can't breathe because I can't grieve. And when you can't grieve, you are constantly being faced with re-traumatization over and over and over again, because you have to be answering another phone call. You have to be on another Zoom meeting. You have to be um, in a car driving to another destination. You have to be going to work. You have to like be um, getting up every day to do something else for somebody else but yourself. As a Black person, Black people are um, overrepresented in the working class, in the lower level working class as well. That means that they are actively having to do something at all. That they are always essential workers. And if majority of people are constantly having to do something at all times, that grief constantly accumulates. It doesn't allow them to truly all together take a big inhale and a big exhale. We can do that through dance. We can do that through singing. We can do that through, you, you know, movement therapy. But it is hard to just truly sit back and do it. And so as of right now, what we see is a collective grieving. That is what grieving looks like. The forest is on fire. That's what grief looks like. A uh, neighborhood is on fire. That's what grief looks like. The shattering of a window is what it feels to not be able to breathe because you have to break a window to get out, to get in, to go to go into something else, to figure out, okay, can I find something in here to help me? be able to understand this grief. There, there's symbiology in everything, and we could talk about that over and over and over again, but, but just the overall arching aspect of it is that 
we are grieving, to be honest. And grief does not only look like one thing. Grief looks like rage. And matter of fact, it looks like what Toni Morrison says that I watched and watched the people who were being harmed over and over and over again. And when they finally did something, I actually admired their patience that it took them that to get there. Like through their rage, I admired their patience. Because we literally are consistently not allowed to grieve the way we have to grieve. And so now the language of grief is going to look hell of a lot different if we actually took the time to truly grieve in community, in sitting down, in our chance. So now our grief looks like something else. Our grief has transformed into something else. As a community, as a family, as, 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 as black people, our grief has transformed into, and, it, and I feel like it transforms consistently over time. And now we're here, where this is, now this is where our grief has transformed. And that's where, why we cannot police the language of grief. We can't say the way grief should look like because it is a ever transforming thing. Grief is a language, a language that we are not willing to speak. It is a language that we are not willing to give words to. Because once we start giving words to that language of grief, once we start giving actions to that, to grief, some people will, will 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 try to tell you that it doesn't even exist in that way, or they try to you know give it another language. They keep trying to change it up on you, and you're like, no, no, that's not what I'm feeling. No, I'm gonna, this is what I'm feeling. And like, no, I don't think that's what you're feeling. But I think this is what you're feeling. <laughs> this is where you need to be right directing it to, you know. And and it's this constant pull and play with people's emotions. It's emotional terrorism, you know? And that's what um, white supremacy is, emotional terrorism. We're just going to say that. But but when it comes to just true grief of what it is that we're doing, we are literally at a time where more than ever, we don't need to police that language because that's what it is. It's new. Like, like people talk about the, the language of war is so old, but the language of healing is new. It's a new vocabulary, specifically if we're going to speak it in the English language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, like, healing in the English language is very new. But speaking war is very old. Speaking grief in the new in the English language is very very new, and so who are we to tell people how that word, how that language is supposed to sound? It's new, and it, it and it's fresh, and it's something that we should just be able to sit back and and listen and just listen to it in its most purest, rawest form. Is just listen to the language of grief. And if that makes you uncomfortable, then be okay with that. Then be okay with, oh, wow, that person's grief is making me very uncomfortable. Be okay with that. Like, that is a very uncomfortable space. For some reason, I feel so uncomfortable when that person is screaming or that person is talking at the top of their lungs. Like, that, 
grief doesn't always look so quiet and quiet as a mouth and and speaking in 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 uh, calming manners. Grief doesn't always look like that. Grief isn't going to sound like that. Grief can be messy. It can be wide. It can be it, it can be everything and it can be everything all at the same exact time because that's the complexities of it. Grief does not have to be one lane. It's just like people are not one lane. We are all very complex beings. We can hold anger and peace at the same exact time. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And that's the way grief is. Grief doesn't have to be one or the other. Be so many things. And and that's sort of just where I want to get people to move into that to to take to hold space for grief is to hold space for all emotions. It's to hold space for all people. Absolutely. So I'm curious for those because while like you said, healing is a new language. And because of that, there are so many people who just don't know how to hold space for the energy that comes up in the presence of grieving. And I also just want to speak to the fact that you're really, really driving home that there is no specific way that grief looks. And so, like you said, while grief can on one side look like rage, it can also look like laughter and celebration and it made me think about a video i saw cycling on social media where you know there was a group of protesters who were just like dancing and expressing right. themselves through movement and through their bodies and 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 it's really important that we hear and remember that because it's like you know we've got people out there in the media making it look like the only way that black people are showing up right now is in anger and making that a bad thing and it's so important to remember that a none of it's good or bad. It just is. It's a grieving process, like you've been saying, and also that it's not all anger. And I think that it's so dangerous to have those narratives that pinpoint one specific uh, behavior on an entire group of people, because that's how we start to create those stereotypes. And it's how we start to, I think, drive an either, even further rift between groups of people. So I really just appreciate what you're saying about the fact that it shows up differently and there is no policing of the language of grief and what it looks like. And I also would love to hear from you, you know, what some of your suggestions are for people who aren't used to holding space for grief, who aren't used to the discomfort that comes up. What are some ways that you would say they can you know, maybe if it's just like one practice to start with or a couple of practices to start with that can help them learn how to hold space in a better way. Um, one of the biggest practices that I feel that um, th that can really help a lot of people is that for them to either set a timer for themselves or I, I don't know, like, like um, I would say set a timer. I would definitely say set a timer, actually. That's that's where I would start. I would say set a timer um, and fully listen to somebody. Say, okay, I'm going to listen to this person without any interruptions, without 
anything without even an agreement or not I, I, nothing like like I, like I can you know nod or you know I can rock or whatever but I'm not going to say anything for 10 minutes while this person talks and then at the end and then at the end of that 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 person talking to them or venting or however that person is showing up at that moment then at the end of all of that I'm only going to say, how can I help? What can I do for you? How can I show up for you today? Mm. And that's it. Just don't 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 interject any answers. Don't say, well, I know what I can do, or oh, well, let well, let me tell you something, or hey, this 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 and that. When a person when there's strong emotions, sit through it, sit and just witness. And time yourself, because I tell people what's wild is that you realize that, that until people start timing themselves, they'll be like, oh, shoot, like, I would have interrupted here. And I looked down at my timer and said, oh, no, I got 10 whole minutes left. I got five more minutes left. Like, this is wild. And like, I, like, like, you start really realizing the practice of how much patience it takes to truly listen mm-hmm. and how much space it takes to just truly listen to somebody even if they are showing up in a way that makes you uncomfortable. And it, you, you, and you just sit there and say, like, whoa, like, I let a person yell and rage for 10 whole minutes or 20 whole minutes, and, and, I, and, I just, and I held that space for them. I held that space for my kid. I held that space for my dad. I held that space for my loved one. Like, like, like just being able to just, not rebuttal them, not 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 rebuttal their emotions, and just allowing them to just be able to exist, and you just sit and listen, and then how can how can I show up for you today? How can I help you today? Beautiful, yeah. And, and I think, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you're okay. Well, there, the, good example. <laughs> it's, it's actually a practice because it's so hard to just listen to somebody. I don't think people really understand the strength it takes to just sit and be present and not speak and allow somebody to have, have their space, to have their moment to really just share what it is that they have to share. And I also think that with the question that you, you, you would pose at the end of what can I do for you, I, I think it's really important to remember to come to that question without any motive of like, you know, how can I make you feel better because I feel so bad? Because I think that right. sometimes that gets really dangerous and it, and it starts to kind of be this like unintentional maybe, but centering of one's own feelings in the midst of someone else's process. And, and I think that, you know, just that the word centering, it's really new for our community and for our society. And people are like, what does that even mean? And so just for people out there who are listening to this pra- practice that Rhythm is sharing, I want you to know that like, when you are centering yourself in the midst of someone else's experience, that means that you're 
kind of listening to respond instead of listening with care and you're saying okay i hear all of the grief and pain that this person is going through and while you're listening you're thinking about all of the grief and pain that it triggers in you and now you're saying well how can i help you how can i make you feel better so that you can now be in a place where you can hold space for me and my process because now i have all this stuff i need you to deal with and i think that that can be really dangerous because like how do you find healing when no one is really being like fully fully present to hold space without any hidden agenda right right and i and, and that's a great point you made because yes you're absolutely right there are people that are very less empathetic and they are only doing it for their own agenda and so uh um i think at that point in time once you are once you are bringing up what can i do for you you have come to the the already empathetic point within yourself to know that i'm not here to have answers for anything i'm not here to tell you that you should feel about anything i'm not here to 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 make you uh you know feel better so i can stop feeling uncomfortable i am literally asking you because I want to truly know and and truly show up in a way that is going to truly be one that you can see of love and and cherishing and and uh, and softness and and whatever it is that you need like I can truly be that one for you but not because I have a, another agenda I because I want to not give you words because I don't want to give you things. I want to know from your own mouth or from your own experiences, what truly do you really need and not go in with a term of saving anybody or helping anybody, but truly saying that's what a community would do, would try to show up in a way that truly is going to help this person that is grieving and not just saying, oh, everything's going to be okay. Or let me just give you something to stop this process. Let me just do something to speed this process up. Let me just, you know, only exist to, to figure out how you can then, you know, in exchange, I can uh, center myself again. It, it is truly a one of empathy of knowing that you have no answers. You have no answers, and this is not about you at all when a person is grieving, that this has nothing to do with your emotions. This has nothing to do with you at all. And you have to literally mentally sit and say, this has nothing to do with me. This has, this has nothing to do with my, my personal body right now at all. But this has everything to do with how this person feels. And I'm going to be present and truly show up for them in that moment of how they feel. And if they tell me, well, what you can do for me is to, is just not to talk to me right now, then I'm going to be okay with just not talking to them. I'm going to be okay with leaving. I'm going to be okay with not, with not having to fix something. And that's, I think, the, the biggest problem with grief is that people are always looking to fix them. Oh, they're crying. How can I fix it? Oh, they're angry. How can I fix it? But the honest truth is that you have to let people go through those emotions that they're going to go through. 
And if they call you out, let them call you out. And, and, and get to a space where you can be okay with that. You can be okay without centering or victimizing yourself during another person's grieving. Another person grieving, start yelling or la- like they're not lashing out on you because they just hate you. They're not upset at you. Like like there there are bigger things here, and I feel that once we stop, once we go in, truly stop censoring ourselves. Because once I go in and I go into anything with a with a clear and mind, I literally my clear heart, my clear mind, literally look. It's it's me saying. I see you, and that's it. And that's all. And that and that is usually what is a recognition of all things that exist within our society is the the representation of knowing that I that you're seen. And um, I, I mean, to be honest, you can take this actually approach to anything. I mean, I literally saw um, uh, uh, me and my partner one time was walking, and we saw a man getting arrested by the like. Well, he's getting more harassed by the police, and you know, he's a black man, and we're in San Francisco, and we're walking by, and he is, uh, and he's riding a bike, and they take him off his bike, and they're like, you know, patting him down and all this, and so we we literally stopped on the sidewalk put our backs against the building that we're at right right in front. And we watch for like a moment. We both have our phones in our hands. We're not recording them just yet. And um, he starts recording. I walk up to the man and I say, hey, I see you. What do you need from me right now? And that was literally it. And he looks at me, he locks eyes with me. And he says, I don't need anything, but thank you for being here. Mm. And we walk back to the spot that I'm at with me and my partner, and we continue to watch while the whole thing goes down. And the cop is like, oh, like, like and, and you can see the rage in this man's face. But every time he would get super, super, super angry, he would lock eyes with us. And we, and I was just, and I was there. We were solid. We were like, we're here radiating whatever it is we need to radiate at this point in time. We're not talking. We're not saying, oh, this, 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 and that. We are holding the space, like physical space right now, because we see you. And if you need me to do anything, I'm here. But if you don't need me to do anything, I'm, I'm just still here. And, and, and that, that's, the radicalness, the, the the change of when I say when just truly holding that space, of truly just saying that like this isn't for me, this isn't about me, this is not, this has not nothing to do with me, but I am here, and if I can do some, if I can do something to help you in this situation, I tell you like 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 that's what you look at grief as like. Grief is just a, a pouring of emotions and words that, that this person either never have not been able to express it for however long or that this person has bottled up or that this person is learning. It's, mm-hmm. They're learning. They're like a baby. You know, they're a baby in their grief almost. Like, like oh, I, I don't know how is this, how this works. And, and we have to be, drop back into that empathetic space 
and just say that this is not like like this like I have my grief and you have your grief, but this grief but what you're talking about, I'm here to witness. I'm here to be witness. If that's if that's what you want to do with your grief, because some people don't even want you to witness it, and that's okay. If a person's not in a space for you to witness their grief, then you walk that. Just walk alone. Like just just like leave. And if a person is just like I don't want to talk, if, or if a person is combating, then just then just leave. Because it's not about you. It is not about you. Right. And and. and and grief does take on sometimes the the language of hurt people hurt people. It does it does equate sometimes grief takes on the the deepness of the hurt that a person will almost say, well, I feel like lashing out lash on somebody else because I'm so hurt. So now you have to be hurt, or you have to physically be hurt because you'll never feel what I feel. So now I want you to feel what I feel. And and that's where I want us to move from because that's where we've been in for all these years, through the patriarchy, through the misogynistic, through all these things. We have literally been in that space of I'm hurt, so I want you to hurt. I don't want to acknowledge my grief, so I'm going to do everything I can to put all these blinders up, put all these walls up, and, and walls of defense. So I don't have to to truly show my grief. Right. And that's where it goes. That's just where that that's where just true empathy uh needs to be at. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's really powerful just, you know, how you and your partner showed up for that man that was being arrested. And it really speaks to, you know, just since everything happening with the death of George Floyd and all of the the riots that have happened and the protests, not all of them are riots. Some of them are protests. Once again, looking at the way that it shows up. um, And it's important to remember that. Um, But, you know, I think there have been so many people, many of them white, asking what can we do? And I would like to say that that moment, if you didn't hear that, go ahead and rewind this podcast and listen to what Rhythm just said, because it's really a powerful thing that you can do as a white person. The thing is, and I, I just commend you for even doing what you did, because it's dangerous in this country right now for Black people to do that. Because a black innocent bystander could become the next victim of police brutality. However, white people have a certain privilege right now where it is not dangerous for them to do that and they should be doing it more. And so if there's any of you questioning, what can I do? The next time you see a black person on the street, um, you know, interfacing with a policeman, you might not know what the situation is and you don't have to but watch, be present, don't be afraid to walk up and say to that person, can I help you? How can I help you? Don't be afraid to bring yourself and your body into that situation because you could be saving someone's life. And that's the one thing that, you know, just on a personal note, with all of the videos I see of Black men and women being 
you know, murdered and treated in such terrible ways, the one thing I don't see is that. I don't see people coming up and, and putting their bodies between Black people. Yeah. Because fear, we're taught to we're fear, and fear is also a form of suppression of grief. Um, uh, they we're taught to fear death, we're taught to fear grief, we're taught to fear emotions. We're taught like fear is a stronghold within this country. We're fearing the conversations around race. We're fearing the conversations around sexism. We are in fear of. A, a police. We're we're in fear of people who are trying to protect us. You know, we are taught to to subconsciously fear everything that um, protects other people's agenda that doesn't protect the earth's agenda. We are literally taught to fear it. We, you know, like you said, the whole thing like we're we we have a fear of being labeled as angry or being labeled as hostile. But you have environmentalists that run out there constantly and are on the front lines uh, and screaming and yelling, and they're called passionate. Mm. So, so you know, like like you have you know you have uh, white men with guns. Oh, they're so passionate about protecting their state. They're so passionate about protecting their, so, oh, they're, you know, they, like, like, they use words to make them look like heroes when they are, when they are expressing the same amount of fear that we express. So, so it's like, when does that cycle stop of, of not allowing fear to get in the way of empathy, to get in the way to not allowing fear to get in the way of grieving, to not allow fear to get in the way of how we to hold bodies during death, how we care for people during death, to not to, to allow us to start speaking about death more openly, to allow us to understand what death really is, allow us to stop just fearing the whole entire cycle. And, um, you, you know, and, and what's really fascinating right now, because you have you have so much fear has come up now, because the, the the society that we're in right now, like in our present right now on a Saturday afternoon, our, our present society has not only had to face the conversation of death due to the pandemic, that there's already taboo and already scary and already fearful, but then they had to face racism. The topic of racism, which is in the core of a lot of people, just as scary as death. Mm. They co that topic coexists because we've been taught to fear that topic. We have been taught to to be in fear of it. Like not just black bodies, but white bodies too. Brown bodies other tan bodies we have been taught to be in fear of that topic and that topic sits within the same space that grief does that death does absolutely and and overcoming that fear is a radical act that is what is so radical about it is just saying i i choose to look my fear in the eye. I choose to look racism in the eye. 
I choose to look grief in the eye. I choose to show up, hold space, and instead of trying to fix it, instead of trying to, to do something that is going to make me feel more comfortable in the face of it, I'm just going to be. Right, because that space will teach you what you need to do. Because when you just be, you're taught how, what to do in that just being state. Once you show up to anything, it's, it's, like, it's like literally you show up and people are building a house. You, you just walk up, you sit, in the, you sit in the house for a minute and people are building it around you. And then you're going to see somebody drop a, drop a screwdriver. You go, oh, oh, hey, hey, let me grab that for you. You're going to mm. see somebody, oh, hey, see that's, that's a heavy piece of wood. Let, let me go, you know, let me lift that up for you. You're going to literally see it once you are in it. But you first have to enter into that, into the construction zone to see what it is that you can, where it is and the beams that you need and, and the wiring that you need and all these things to do. But if you have so much fear of not even entering into the construction zone, then you, you're going to forever be a bystander. You're going to forever center your own emotions over over a building, over something that you can truly build and something that can last, something that can be sustainably built. Our fear of going into these places we call unknown, into grief, into death, into racism, has done more harm to our very existence of the environment and and species than anything else in this world. We have pumped bodies full of chemicals and put them in hard boxes and said that they cannot decay because we can't deal with the fact of decay. We can't deal with the fact of an ideal of a body really truly composting and going back to the earth. We have told black bodies and black voices to be quiet and that all of us matter because we cannot deal with the destruction that has, been, that has wreaked havoc on these people's souls, their livelihood, on their resources, on their economy, on their entire family structures. We have not been taught how to truly not center the topic of what destruction really looks like, what true environmentalism looks like around things that can truly help it change and help it grow and help it flourish. Because racism and the death of a black body, the death of a black body by a, another systemic play another systemic uh, piece in the puzzle is a direct reflection of the environment. These all coexist. They all coexist. And, and, um, and one of my favorite sayings is um, for to understand just truly the cycle. It says, we repeat what we don't repair. And I'm going to say it again. We repeat what we don't repair. And to truly start repairing, we have to get to the roots 
of these things. We have to get to the root of racism. We have to get to the root of death. We have to get to the root of grief. We have to get to the root of empathy. We have to get to these roots. We have to get to the roots of patriarchy. We have to get to we have to get to these roots. Or we will continue to repeat it again and again and again. Very, very, very well said. And I just really appreciate you for sharing that perspective, that truth. And I feel like it's a really beautiful place to leave our listeners today with just letting them know, like, this is where we're at. We have to be able to get to the root and it will be scary. It won't be easy, but nothing worth it really is. So I, I really appreciate you, Rhythm, for coming on to the show today to just speak this realness, to, to speak this truth. I know that this is not going to be a really easy episode for everybody to hear, but I'm so excited that it's going to be out there for them to listen to because it's, I really do think that hearing this is how we really spark the real change that needs to take place. And I know that you have really dedicated your life to doing this work, to doing what's uncomfortable and to holding space for grief and to teaching people how to do so. And so I would love to just ask you, you know, what, what's coming up? Where can people find you? And what are you doing in the world next where people can come and learn more from you? Okay. Um, yes. First, I want to say thank you as well. Like, uh, it's been um, great to be here, to be on this show. And um, I just really look forward to more of your work. And I know it's just going to keep being amazing. Um, my work is, um, I, you can find me at divinethriverealm.com. Or you can also find me at Instagram, Divine Thrive Realm as well. And I also even have a Facebook page. I'm not too savvy with the technology to, as of right now. I'm trying to get better. I might have to get a team together. I don't know. But um, uh, I, you can find me on Instagram. You can always message me. Um, you know, I'm very much personable. I love meeting new people. I love talking to them. And I like really um, seeing where people are at with their evolution of, uh, you know, sacredness of bringing back full circle of what it is that we, we really want to see our world um, evolve into. Um, the, yeah, um, I would say my upcoming, I'm trying to think of my upcoming because I have so many random things that happen, but uh, one of my upcoming things that I'm doing, uh, I would say next Sunday, I will be at, it's called Spirit Weavers, and um, I'll be doing a virtual weave. So it'd be online. Um, I would say go to spiritweavers.com. You can register for it. And you can specifically register for my class that I'll be teaching, but I'll be teaching the fundamentals of grieving. Um, and that's a woman, a women only um, led space. So it will be, you know, if you're a woman, hey, we got you. Um, uh, but I do hold other co, I also hold a lot of other co-ed type of things, events as well. But um, that's my most upcoming one. Um, eventually, towards the end of the month, I don't know exact, the exact dates, but um, I will be also holding another space, another webinar as well. And that's going to be um, just my, uh, uh, based off of another Oakland chapter that is having their um, grief ceremony as well. So I'll be holding space there. Um, I do uh, do one-on-one -on -one 
talks. I do one-on-one um, grief counseling um, with a lot of people, um, sliding scale fees. Um, and I also, uh, also have lots of more resources on my Instagram. So if you follow me on Instagram, you can also see my upcoming events. And I also make sure that um, people who sign for my newsletter is always in the know-how as well as like any upcoming events. I, I'm not traveling too much, but um, I do definitely, when before the pandemic, I was traveling and going to different places and um, showing up at different places and being hosted at different places to talk or um, explain to people uh, the you know the the life cycle I would say and so um I uh yeah yeah just follow me on social media right now um sorry it's a lot you know so much that I, I want to be like oh there's all these things coming up but right now there is um you know just uh, more simplified things and so just be stay tuned for this month and I hope to see people um you know really reach out if they really need to reach out to me Thank you so much, Rhythm. And I will make sure to put everything in the show notes as well. So if you want to go and follow and support, that will all be in the show notes. And just a quick, so this episode will be airing on June 8th and Rhythm will be giving her Fundamentals of Grieving workshop with the Virtual Weave for Spirit Weavers on June 14th. So make sure that you hop on over there. Don't miss out. Um, I know it's going to be even more amazing than what we just experienced today. And this was so powerful to me. So don't, don't miss out. Um, and support, you know, right now, I think more than anything, um, what I'm loving about the times that we're in right now is that Black people are getting their platforms, the platforms that we've been you know, needing to get for a while now. So even if you don't have any intentions of, you know, being ready to step into this work, go and support Rhythm. Just send her, send her your love, send her your donations just to support because the fact that we have Black people showing up to do this work, it's radical, it's powerful, and they should be accept, uh, accepted and supported in this work. And so I just want to thank you, Rhythm, for doing everything that you do and having the courage to show up every day for it and for, for humanity. Thank, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I really do. Uh, I, like I said, that um, I, I really don't think there's anything special, unfortunately, about me that um, that I'm just like that that I'm not supposed to be doing, and I'm only doing what I feel that um, is necessary and has been necessary. So I really appreciate that. That really touches my heart and soul. So thank you as well, CJ. You are definitely holding it down. Thank you. And keep on, keep on holding it down. I love it. I love it all. Mm, and thank you, Rhythm. And hopefully we get to have you on the show again soon. I know there's so much that I still want to talk with you about. So I'll have to get in touch with you and have you back. I'm sure our listeners will want to have you back as well. And I hope you have a wonderful and powerful rest of your day. Thank you so much as well. You rest, rest well, all right, sis. I'll talk to y'all later. That's our episode for today. I hope you feel empowered to go out into the world and make space for others or just take up some space for your sexy self. You're worth it. If you enjoyed this podcast, I want to know about it. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and listen with your friends, because ain't no party like a podcast party, y'all. The music for today's podcast was gifted by Southern Oregon hip-hop artist and producer, Jaya Rays. You can hear more of his amazing music on iTunes. That's J-A-Y-A 
raise. Catch you on the next episode. Here is space, here's a wave like crush. By the way, here your heart, here's you clearly. What will you say? Here is heat, here you speak, here's a wheel that turns eternally. A lot of nothing, absolute and empty, just like me.